Abundance of love Abundance of grace Nailed to that cross You took my place Oh God You paid my ransom My ransom Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Church. Loving God, loving people. Now, here's Pastor Scott. 37 years I've been walking this life, and I want to share with you this morning a sermon that I set aside this time of the month. It very seldom falls on a Sunday. Typically, depending on leap year, for those of you who are calendar experts, whatever day it was this year, it'll be one day behind next year. So if the calendar's right, next year, July 15th, will fall on a Saturday, then a Friday, then a Thursday, then a Wednesday, then leap year will drop it to Monday, and like that. So very seldom, once every five, six, seven years, depending on how the calendar flows, this day falls on a Sunday. And I want you to listen today as I share with you what God has done in my life. I want you to listen today as I share with you my testimony, because the Bible teaches that it's our responsibility to share our testimony with others. Some of you are truly saved. I believe that. Some of you have a real relationship with God and you want to see your children saved. You want to see your spouses, significant others, boyfriends, girlfriends, children, family members, co-workers, friends saved. The, and I want to tell you, you will win more people to Christ with your own testimony than you will win by beating them over the head with scripture. See, the Bible says if a wise person argues with a foolish person, there is no rest. There is no peace. Whether you agree together or whether you disagree, you really don't gain a lot of ground. People that argue and debate Scripture really are, you know, it, it, they're, they're just fighting against the wind. But here's, because people can argue. It's like when cults come to my house and knock on the door. Of course, y'all know me. I don't answer the door for anything. If you, you come into my house, you better call ahead. You'll be ringing the door. I know he's there. Yeah, I'm there. But I don't answer the door. Uh, but... If they come to my house, they want to stand in the doorway and debate Scripture. And I know Christians who stand in doorways and debate Scripture with other people from different type of religious backgrounds. And for every Scripture you can throw them, they can throw a different one at you. For, for your idea of what a Scripture means, they've got their own idea of what a Scripture means. The reality is people can argue with your theology. But what they can't argue with is the change that God has made in you. When I first got saved, I started telling everyone that I knew about what God had done in my life and, and started with my family, my mother, my sister, my brother. And, of course, they didn't believe me, and they, they thought that I, I'd lost my mind. But as they saw the changes in me, they started coming and asked me, all right, tell me what's really going on. And God began to save the people in my family. I want you to understand the power in your testimony. But first, before you can understand that, you have to understand the necessity of a testimony. So I want you to follow along with me this morning because I believe even if you've heard this sermon before, this can help pr prompt you to begin to go out and reach your friends and family for Christ. I'm not saying this for response. You don't have to say amen or raise your hand, but I just want you to think right now, is there anybody in the room who would truly like to see somebody that they care about have real salvation? Okay, this is going to help you get to that place. There are people in this room today that need real salvation, and it's going to help you get there as well. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And these verses will be on the screen if the screens are working. Uh, and if not, I'll read them. And here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 
verse 12, the Bible says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. He said, Who has enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I want to preach to you this morning from a sermon titled, I Haven't Always Been Like This. I haven't always been like this. If you're saved, there's something in you that knows that you haven't always been the way you are too. Pray with me. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for the work you began in me 37 years ago. And God, now I ask that you would hide me behind a cross. Speak through me, God. Anoint my mouth and my mind to say things that would be sound doctrine. Lord, I pray that you'd encourage every Christian here today to share their testimony and to tell others of your goodness and your grace. I pray for every person who is yet unsaved in this place, God, that you would pour your love out on them and draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. I love this concept. I haven't always been like this. This concept has given me so much excitement and reassurance over the years because how many of y'all know people can be ignorant? How many of y'all know you can be fired up and excited for God uh, at, come out of your prayer closet in the morning having had your devotion and not even get out of your subdivision before somebody tries to snatch your joy right out from you. And people can just do dumb things. And saved people are not, we, we're not exempt from people's ignorance. As a matter of fact, I believe because the devil knows all of our hot buttons, if ignorant people bother you, he sends you a special batch. I don't know how it works for you. I know how it works for me. Uh, I, I could point some out. I could write a book on ignorant people, but uh, it, it wouldn't, I, I don't, I don't want to promote that. But here's the deal. If you haven't always been the way you are now, there's power in that thought. And let me tell you the power of, of excitement that it gives me. When people do stuff to me, sometimes I react wrong as a Christian. You, you say, you mean as a pastor? No, as a Christian. God calls all Christians to be holy. God didn't say Christians be holy and pastors be holier. So as a Christian, sometimes I respond wrong. But sometimes I respond right. And here's the thing that always floods my heart with joy. When somebody does something to me that I know in, in days gone by would have created a negative reaction, and I respond properly in love and grace and in Christian sainthood, it, it, my, my salvation just wells up in my chest and says, thank you, Jesus. I know I'm saved. I know for sure I'm saved. If I wasn't saved, that would went a whole different way. If I, if I wasn't saved, now, if you tell the person that, then, then maybe there's issues of that. I mean, if you're like, well, if I wasn't saved, I would just snatch your throat right out of your neck right now. I would, I would just cave your larynx. If you tell them that, then there's probably great need for counseling involved. But if, you, if something happens to you in your life that back in the day, you know what it caused one reaction, but now because of God in your life, it causes another reaction, that ought to give you great hope and great re I know I'm saved, and I haven't always been like this because it could have went bad for you. This is something that you need to internalize. This is something that you need to get to the place in your life where this is happening to you on a consistent basis because this is what the Bible means when it says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You get to see through the way that you're living your salvation being lived out 
in you. Now, if you're still the same old you you've always been, if you're still the, the, treating people the same way you've always treated people, if you're, and this is the problem, and, and, and Brother Rick and I have talked about this a lot, people who grow up in the church all the time, especially preachers' kids, and I've talked to my kids about this, uh, if, if all they've ever known is church, if all they've ever had was all the right answers to the, to the preacher questions, then they, they don't really sometimes have that awareness of, I used to be this way, but now I'm that way, but here's what I know. Even preacher's kids, even, even kids who've been in church their whole life, even kids who never did anything in gross sin still have a change in their life when they go from being unsaved to saved. They have a change on the inside. They might not have been heroin users turned into pastors, but they, they were one way and God changed them into a different way because the Scripture says the proof of salvation is a changed life. And Paul is saying here... In the passages we just read in 1 Timothy that God brought him into this thing and that he used to be a different way. The Apostle Paul, if you study scripture at all, you will know was a great man, a man greatly used by God, a man that God used to write over half the books in the Old Testament. Don't ever agree with unsaved people that say the Bible is a book written by men. The Bible is not a book written by men. The Bible is a book written by God through the hands of men to draw the pen. That's man's part in it. If I told Deacon West right now, uh, write this down for me so I don't forget it, and he wrote down the, for whatever five words I gave him to write down, those are still my words just because he moved the pen. Don't make them his words. But God used the Apostle Paul to inspire him to write half the books in the New Testament. Paul was so on point with God, he was able to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, be followers of me, as I am of Christ. Now, here's the reality. Most people would say, well, I ain't there yet. Most people would say, I can't really stand up in front of a group of people and say, follow me as I follow Christ. But I want you to know every one of us should be able to say that. Follow me. See, I, I can tell. Uh, Deacon West, been, been in our church uh, 12, 13 years, um, so, somewhere in that age, 10, uh, forever. And I can tell him, follow me. The way I follow Jesus. And, here, and here's what will happen. I follow Jesus imperfectly. I follow Jesus where sometimes I fail. But I always get back up and continue to follow him. Now, I would love to be a better example to people who look to me as their, as their leader, as their spiritual leader like Deacon West does. I'd love to be a perfect example. But I'm not a perfect example. But I can't say follow me as I follow Christ because he's seen life knock me down. But he's always seen me get back up and chase the Lord. You ought to be able to tell people, just like Paul, follow me as I follow Jesus. Some people think, well, I ain't following that person because they're, they're not. No one's perfect, but some people's pursuit of God is relentless. I wonder this morning, do you have a relentless pursuit of God? Everybody who's successful in their relationship with God has a relentless fellowship for God. Paul was determined to follow God. Paul had ups and downs in life, and, and that's just how life is. Lots of different reasons why I don't listen to preaching on television. I, I find very little sound doctrine on TV preaching. I find very, so, so much so that when the local TBN station came to us, when, when we were in a different location, much larger church, they came, they wanted to put us on air for free because of our they, they thought our dynamic was interesting and it, it would make, make Jacksonville look like it was doing something against its uh, racist background. And I told them I didn't have any desire to be on TV preaching for free. If people want to hear the messages, they can get them free 
off the website. And people ask, Pastor, why didn't, why didn't you want us to be put on TV? And I told, told the church then, and I say it now, uh, before I ever let this church go on TV with a camera that shows my face and what I look like while I'm preaching, I want all y'all to have to look and see what y'all's face looks like when I'm preaching at you. Some people are just a blessing to preach to. Some people are just an encouragement to preach to because they're actively listening. Other people make me just want to throw the microphone down and say, yeah, it's hard on me too. Let's just go to lunch. Because some people just are not in it at all. I've been trying to tell people for the last 37 years, be in it to win it. Some people just ain't even in it yet. But life has ups and downs. Would you agree with that? Life is so weird. One day you can be having the greatest day of your life, followed by the next day being the worst day of your life. It's always disheartening to me when I hear about people who have tragedy surrounding celebratory days. My, My little brother died on Christmas Eve, late Christmas Eve, early Christmas morning, uh, 2001. It was our, it was my first Christmas as a parent. Uh, had a little baby boy, and we, we were going over to my mom's house. By the time we got there, everybody was crying, and Christmas had been turned upside down because we had gotten the news that my little brother had died that morning in a, in a motorcycle accident. So for my family, Christmas always has that reminder that the youngest child died. It's not supposed to happen like that. A mother not supposed to bury the baby first. Um, But so when people have difficult days and uh, surrounding uh, great days, and so, you know, a similar thing has happened to me in my life, the most celebratory day of my life. I I don't get excited. When people ask me what I want for my birthday, it's the same thing I want for Christmas and the same thing I want for tomorrow. Nothing, just love the Lord and and be all that God wants you to be. Um, I'm not... I give away a lot of things. I don't, I don't receive a lot of things. I don't, I don't ask people for gifts. I don't, you know, we, we just live life how we live life. So my birthday, my natural birthday is, you know, I don't do cakes and all that for me. Uh, you get to this age, you let all that go. And you get up above 215 pounds, you just, well, you eat too much cake, but you don't have to wait till your birthday to eat it. But thir- uh, 12 years ago, on July 15th, 2006, I was celebrating my 25th spiritual birthday. And, you know, we've been conditioning our mind to think 25, that's a big deal, right? Some of y'all have been married. How many, how many people in the room have been married for 25 years or, or more? Anybody? I know, I know, okay, all right. All right, in every section. So that, that's a big deal. Most people don't hit that. We're conditioned to think 25 years is a big deal. And I was so excited to be coming up on my 25th spiritual birthday. And I, I can remember, man, it was, it was awesome. I was thanking God. I was just overflow, over, overflowing in, in joy and excitement. 25 years of being a Christian. And the very next day, my wife died and left me with a two-year-old and a four-year-old. So I go from the best day of my life, 25th anniversary of my salvation, to 8.15 on Sunday morning, holding my wife's hand in hospice as she took her last breath. And so life has ups and life has downs. The thing you've got to do is learn how to be consistent through it all. The thing that you've got to do is learn how to hold on to God consistently through it all. That's one of the things that Paul did. It's one of the things that I've done, and it's one of the things that everyone needs to do. In verse 12 of our opening text, Paul said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, for he counted me faithful, 
putting me into the ministry. I love this. Every pastor search committee, every church looking for a new preacher because they don't like their current preacher needs to read this verse and figure out what it means. He does not say, I thank God. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who enabled me for that the pulpit committee, the deacon search committee, and the majority of the people at the local church voted me in saying that they think I'll do a good enough job for the money they want to pay me. That's not what the Apostle Paul said. He said, God put me in this ministry. He said, Jesus, our Lord, enabled me, and he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Now, when Jesus counted Paul faithful, it wasn't because Paul was perfect, because Paul was not perfect. Paul probably was the least desirable pastor in the first century. And, I, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But it wasn't the people that selected Paul. It, it wasn't a vote that put Paul in ministry. It was God. I want you to know God has a plan for your life. And nobody in the world, no person in the world, and no vote in the world can ever overcome what God's plan for your life is. What God has gifted and called you to do, he will enable you to do. He, he went on to, in verse 13 to tell his testimony a little bit. He says, who was before, see, because Paul hadn't always been the way he was as a minister. He said before, he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. Colon, stop right there and let's consider the first half of this verse. Paul says he has a before life and a current life. We all should have a before life, a current life, and a future life. My before life is unsaved. My before life is outside of Christ and the covenant of God. My current life is saved and on my way to heaven. My future life is going to be in heaven forever with God. And Paul said, before, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. Here's what I want you to know about the Apostle Paul. He worked for the, as a Jew for the Roman government persecuting Christians. He worked as a Jew for the Roman government taking warrants, arrest warrants, murder, execution warrants, to, and serving those to people, arresting entire families of people, killing people, holding the jackets. The first Christian who was ever stoned, uh, New Testament martyr, was Stephen, and Paul was the one who held the paperwork and said, I'm here by the state order, we're going to kill this man because he won't shut up talking about this new religion after Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he held the men's coats while they stoned Stephen to death. What did Stephen do wrong, according to Paul? He was preaching Jesus, and he, and he, he wasn't following the decrees of Rome. He said he blasphemed Jesus. He told everybody Jesus was the wrong way. He, he persecuted the church. He injured people. He went on to say, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. He didn't understand that God's way for his life was better than the way he was following. But he found that out. Here's the story. I'll give it to you in a snapshot. First century comes along. Jesus lives, dies, buried, third day rises from the dead. After he's risen from the dead, there's a 40-day period where he's popping up everywhere. He's showing himself alive in a resurrected body, and people are freaking out. And they're like, this cat beat death. I'm following him. It says one time he showed himself in a resurrected body to over 500 people at one time. That kind of news will get out. Somebody dies that you know, you go to the funeral, and then next week they, they show up at, 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 the, at the wing shack. You're like, I'm listening to whatever you've got to say. And so people are coming to this new religion, and the government didn't like it, so they started persecuting people who were coming to this new religion that at that time they were calling the way. And there's still some offshoots of Christianity that call themselves the way ministry. And Paul was out there arresting these people, having them thrown in jail, uh, having them executed, and in just a short period of time he becomes the most noted pastor, bishop, 
apostle overseer on the planet. Now imagine this. Some people come into a church and they look down their nose at the pastor because they heard that he did thus and so and this and that. He, I, ain't, I ain't listening to him. I know too much on him. I know too much about him. I know too much about her. And imagine if you were in a church, you're going to a church, and there are overseers traveling through town because Paul was a traveling overseer. He's traveling through town. He stops in at the church of Colossae where he's had people killed in that city just for being a Christian. Imagine if your mother, your father, your brother, aunt, uncle, grandmother, grandfather, and all your cousins were, were jailed and killed because the apostle Paul, and now you've become a Christian. They, they, you're, they, they, got, they led you to Christ. Your whole family saved. They all end up getting killed or jailed for their faith at the hands of this one man, Paul. And then your pastor stands up on a Sunday morning and says, I want you to prepare your hearts and your minds to receive our speaker today, the man of God, the, the tower of power, anointed for the hour, <laughs> Apostle Paul. How you feeling? This is the man that had your parents killed for being Christians. Now you're supposed to sit there and listen to what he has to say about how to be a Christian? This the man that had your family imprisoned for being a Christian. Now you're supposed to listen to what he has to say about what God is telling him to tell you, and you've been saved longer than him? You've been in this thing longer than him? You've suffered through more than he suffered? Listen, you, you don't want that guy, I guarantee you. If Ted Bundy would have not died, if, if Ted Bundy would have got out of jail and ran for pastor at the local church. Mo, uh, do y'all realize most people not voting in, uh, Google it, you'll figure it out. Most people not voting in Ted Bundy to be their pastor. The Apostle Paul had the worst reputation of anybody in that area in the first century. He had jailed more, executed more, and done more to harm the young, new-found, growing church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God had a plan for Paul's life. And so he's telling people, you know, I have a before life. I, I, used, I used to be this cat. But I'm a new person now. Verse 14 says, The grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice what he didn't say. He said, The grace and the love of the people in the church overwhelmed me. People's acceptance of me as a former bad guy is just so amazing because they're so kind. No, he doesn't say anything about the people. He said it's God's amazing love, exceeding abundant with faith and love that is found in Christ Jesus. I want you to know, if you don't hear anything, hear this. You don't need anybody to accept you other than God. You don't need anybody's stamp of approval over your life other than God. You need to make sure that you know who it is that's judging you. Now, I don't get any of my theology from songs or from entertainers. Sometimes people say the right thing. Sometimes even the wrong people say the right thing. I'll give you an example of it. Tupac, living wrong, but said the right thing. What did Tupac say? Only God can. Only God can judge me. That, that, well, that's bad news for some folks. Because God's judgment is real. But I want you to understand what the Apostle Paul knew. Only God can judge you. Some of you are sitting in here and you are still being condemned in your own mind by things that you've done in your past. How, how, how easily could Paul have felt bad about himself for killing Christians and then trying to preach to them? For, for being a traitor to his own race of people and, and working for, for the oppressor in Rome. How, how guilty could he, he could have lived a life of guilt, but he knew, hey, I did that before I was saved. I didn't understand everything that was going on. And then in verse 
15, he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, thankfully, there is no contest for who's the worst sinner. If there was a contest for who's the worst sinner, we could stay in here and debate it for a while today just in this group of people. Because I don't want you to raise your hand because some of y'all just raise your hand just, just because and some of y'all wouldn't raise your hand if I pointed a gun at you because you're scared to be labeled a charismatic. But I, you don't have to raise your hand. That's funny. It's okay to smile. But some of y'all know you might not be the worst sinner, but you're in the top ten. Anybody agree with that? Some, some of y'all know. Uh, yeah, Paul could say that 2,000 years ago because he didn't know my cousin, right? You, know, you, you might not think that you're the top sinner, but you got a black sheep in your family somewhere. Uh, I, I'm the black sheep in my family. Anybody else? All right. Listen, here's the deal. Some people are not the black sheep of the family. That's true. But a lot of people don't think they're the black sheep of the family just because they ain't smart enough to figure it out. Yeah, think about it. Who's mama call first? All right, let's keep moving because I don't want to depress you this morning. He said, I am a big-time sinner. I've done a lot of bad stuff in my life, but that was before, and this is now. I hope you have a that was before, and this is now life. I hope you have an old way and a new way because the Bible is constantly telling us to put off our old way and embrace our new way. You don't get a new way until you have a real live encounter with Jesus, and that's what happened to Paul. Paul had a Damascus Road experience that everywhere he went, he told people about. Everywhere he went, he told people, I used to be this way, but now I'm that way. I was walking down this road uh, to Damascus, and I saw the Lord, and God changed my life. And he told people that everywhere. See, if you start telling people your testimony, if you start telling people that you used to be a certain way, but now God has changed you, then they can't hold your past over you anymore. Forget about what's wrong you've done. Forget about what you did that you wish you hadn't have done and embrace the newness that you can have in Jesus Christ. Paul never forgot what Jesus did for him, and he never got over it. And this is the key. There are people in this room today who are saved to be Christians, I mean, who are glad to be saved and, and, and in Christ. There are other people in this room who think that they're saved, and they feel, yeah, I'm saved, whatever, okay, I get it. And that's not a real salvation in my mind. Uh, there are people who are truly saved but are not thriving in their Christianity. Here's where the difference happens. Paul never forgot and he never got over what happened to him on, Dam- on the Damascus Road. He never forgot and he never got over. That's why it's so easy for me to always come running back to God because I have never forgotten and I've never gotten over what God did for me on July 15, 1981. I've never forgotten, and I've never gotten over. Some of you don't have a specific time and a date in memory the, the same way I do. Some of you got saved in a church service. You didn't write down what day it was. You didn't write down what month it was. But the reality is if you get saved and you get over it, that's not biblical salvation. That's just church. Paul never forgot, and he never got over If If God saved you, you ought to know that God saved you, and you ought to never get over it and if you don't forget it and you don't get over it you're going to be telling people he, he told his story to festus the governor in acts 22 about his damascus road experience then in acts 26 he tells his testimony to king agrippa i'm going to read i'm going to blow through acts 26 quickly and then we're going to wrap up but i want you to hear how important it is to have a testimony your testimony doesn't have to be what my testimony is 
It can't be. It's a different story. You're a different person. I'm a different person. We're not going to have the same testimony that Paul had, but I want you to see how to tell a testimony because it will be the power of your testimony that will win your friends and family to Christ. It will be the before and after of your life that proves you are truly saved to your friends and family. In Acts 26.1, Paul is in a court office. Paul is standing before the king, and they have been constantly trying to lock Paul up because he's turned his back on being a persecutor of the church and has become a leader in the church, and they keep trying to arrest him and have him executed. And in verse 1 of Acts 26, the Bible says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You may speak in your defense. So Paul, gesturing with his hand, started his defense. Listen to what he says. He said, I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. Now, see, this is just good speaking. This is just good courtroom etiquette. He starts off by saying something good about the king, who was also the judge and the executioner at this point in the legal process. He said, man, king, I'm glad I have got you and not one of your flunkies to listen to me. I'm glad that you're the one listening because I know that uh, we got some things in common. He said in verse 3, he said, For I know you're an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now please listen to me patiently. As the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people in Jerusalem. If they would admit it, they know I have been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. So he says, All right, king. You know all about our Jewish rules, laws, customs, religions. You know about how, how we do. And everybody that's a Jew in this country knows that the Apostle Paul was a leader of the Jewish religion before he followed Jesus Christ. He said, I was at the top hierarchy of the Pharisaical order, the strictest sect of our religion. Verse 6, he said, now I'm on trial because of my hope in fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. See, they didn't like Paul saying that Jesus rose from the dead and he saw a resurrected Jesus. They're like, you're a blasphemer and a liar. You, ha you haven't seen a resurrected Jesus, and you, you need to stop lying. And he's like, we, they've been saying resurrection. Moses preached resurrection. We've been talking about Messiah and redemption forever. And he's saying, now they got me on trial for what we all say we agree on. Verse 7, he says, in fact, this is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God day and night. And they share the same hope I have. Yet, Your Majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. See, everybody that's ever been saved got saved through the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. So we look back 2,000 years ago at the cross. Well, how did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob get saved? How did Old Testament people get saved? Did they have a different setup? No, they had the exact same setup. Faith in the Messiah. They look forward to a coming Messiah. We look back at the Messiah who came. But it's always about redemption. It's always about resurrection. And they were preaching that for thousands of years. But Paul's saying he's living it out, and now they want to throw him in prison over it. In verse 8, it says, Why does it yet seem incredible to any of you that, I, that God can raise the dead? Now, if we ask, do you believe God can raise the dead? Every real Christian in the room, by, by virtue of Christianity, would have to say, yes, we believe that God can raise the dead. The Bible says that God raised Jesus from the dead, so all those who follow him can be raised from the dead as well. In verse 9, he said, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus, the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priest, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. 
Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. This dude, man, he's, he's, he's vicious. He was chasing Christians down. He was going in their church and saying, blaspheme Jesus. Call Jesus a liar and a fake or I'm taking you to prison right now. I wonder how that would roll right now if, if the government came in right now and said, all right, we're tired of these Christians because here's, here's what the politically correct crowd wants everybody to believe. If you say your religion is better than someone else's religion, that makes you, in their mind, a bigot, a racist, racist a horrible person, a closed-minded, ignorant person, a shallow-minded, hateful person. Listen, if I say that I am more light-skinned than Henry West, that don't make me a racist. If I say Henry West is taller than me, that don't make me a tallophobe. Make that up. Add that to xenophobe, misogynist, and every other word they've invented in this century. Telling the truth does not make you a bad person. If you tell somebody, someone says, what's the best religion in your mind, and you say Buddha, you don't need to call on Jesus to save you. And he's the only one who can. If someone says to you, do you believe Christianity is a better religion than Islam, your answer better be yes. Because Jesus said he's the only way that you can get to the Father. But, but people, people hate the truth. Paul, Paul was out there coming into churches, coming into synagogues saying, curse Jesus or die. I wonder how that roll off for us right now. We don't have to wonder uh, about what would happen in other parts of the world because if you go one day to that black and white map in the back by that fake tree, there's, there's countries all over there that are executing our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world for standing up for Jesus. And they're being told, blaspheme Jesus or die, and they're having heads cut off of Christians all around the world. Now, I think the, the American Christian is probably the laziest Christian on the planet because we got life so easy. Do, do, do you realize that 99% of Americans are in the top 10% of global wealth. If you, are to, if you are broke as a joke and can barely afford your smoke, you still got more money than the majority of people around the world. I told you, every, every broke person I know has a pack of cigarettes, a lighter, a lottery ticket, uh, cable TV. Um, people around the world that have nothing but Jesus, they willingly say, I will not blaspheme him. I will surely die for him. I think about Americans. The government came in here right now with paperwork saying we're executing all y'all. Anybody who claimed Jesus is going to be executed. People be thinking, and I'm kind of looking forward to that game this afternoon at 1 o'clock. You know, can I come back? People have so many other things that they value above Christ. But Paul said, look, man, I, I, was, I was opposed to Jesus too at one point. I was doing bad things to the church at one point. But then the story changes in verse 12, and here comes his testimony. Listen to this. He said, one day... I was on such a mission. He was chasing down Christians. I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. About noon, your majesty, I was on the road, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me by my companions. That rock song stole this story from the apostle Paul and and put it in some twisted rock song that says, blinded by the light. Paul's the original blinded by the light. Now, for those of y'all that don't know and don't care, the, the wording, everybody, majority of everybody I ever knew tried to sing the next, next phrase on this song, blinded by the light, wrapped up 
like a deuce, another roamer in the night. Makes no sense at all. No, no sense at all. It's talking about a two-barrel carburetor driving down the street at night, but they stole. Listen, people try to steal stuff that they don't possess. There are people in this room right now trying to steal the reputation of a Christian that don't really have it. If you haven't been blinded by the light, but you sing about being blinded by the light, then you're just fooling yourself. But Paul said he was blinded by the light, shine brighter than the day. He said in verse 14, we all fell down, and I heard a voice saying in Aramaic, Saul, Saul. Saul was his given name. Jesus gave him a new name, Paul. He said, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. There are people in this room that are in the same place that Saul was. Same, Paul, Saul, same dude. There are people in this room in the same place fighting against God, resisting God's call on their life, resisting answering God's call for salvation and fellowship. And God will tell you the same thing he told Paul. It's useless for you to fight against my will. Verse 15, he said, Who are you, Lord? I asked, and the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. What a slap in the face. What a gotcha moment. What a, I pulled the covers off, and here I am. And now he's face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 16, he said, now get to your feet. For I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. You are to tell the world what you have seen and what I will show you in the future. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that he does not respect one follower over another. Here's what he said to Paul. This is why I've revealed myself to you, so that you can tell the world what you have seen and what I will show you in the future. If you call yourself a Christian and you wonder what your purpose in life is, here's what it is. To tell the world what you've seen in Jesus Christ and what God will continue to show you in the future. Jesus is telling Paul about his new destiny. In verse 17, he said, I'll rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to a light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. Look in the middle of this screen. It says, then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith. Then they will receive all right, Abundant Life people, when is then? Then is always after. When you read then in literature, it means after something else has happened. After you get saved, you receive forgiveness for your sins, and you get a place among God's people. If you're not sure that you have forgiveness of sins and a place among God's people, you need to call on God today to save you. This is real, live Christianity. Verse 19, Paul goes on and says, And so, King Agrippa, I obeyed. That vision from heaven. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles that all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove they have changed by the good things they do. This is the proof text of whether or not you are really saved. This is the proof text in God's holy word that describes what real salvation looks like. You must repent of your sins and turn to God. After you've done that, you must prove that you've changed by the good things that you do. Saying that you walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, accepted Christ, no change happened in your life, and you just kept on doing you, that's not salvation. That's bad doctrine by liars in pulpits, people 
grinding an organ and manipulating you down on your emotions to come and pray a prayer that you don't really mean. Because here's what happens to people who truly get saved, like the Apostle Paul got saved on the road to Damascus, like I got saved at 345 on 6956 Malden Lane right off uh, uh, Jamie's Road and, and Townsend in, in 1981. I repented of my sins and I turned to God. And here's what proves that that was real. I, was, I, I could prove that change by the good things that God began to use me to do. What could you point to right now if I asked you, are, are you a Christian? Yep. When, when did you get saved? Oh, well, I've always been saved. You just disqualified yourself. You, you, can't, you can't have salvation. You can't get to then without something happening before. Then doesn't come until after. You, you can't, if you say, I've always been saved, that tells me you don't understand what salvation is. That's like, I say, what year did you graduate high school? Oh, well, I've always graduated high school. Now, this is an event. What year did you move to Jacksonville? Oh, well, I've just always lived in Jacksonville. Well, when were you born? Oh, no, I've just always been alive. You know this person needs medication. You cut the conversation off. Go do something different. Real Christianity is being face-to-face with God, having an encounter with God that brings repentance of sins and a turning to God. And that is proved out by the changed things that Christians do. This is Paul's testimony, verse 21. He said, some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me. But God has protected me right up to this present time so I can testify to everyone from the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen. You want to know what God's plan for your life is? You want to know what your purpose in life is? Your purpose is to have an encounter with God, repent of your sins, turn to God, prove that that change in your life is real by the good things that you do. Let God protect you and keep you alive through all the ups and downs in life so that you can testify to, to everyone from the leadest, least to the greatest that Jesus is the only way to God. If you're saved, you have a mission, and that mission is to tell the world about God's love through His Son, Jesus Christ. In verse 23, it says that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead. And this way announced God's light to Jews and Gentiles alike. Suddenly Festus shouted. Now here's the governor that Paul's already talked to. Paul's already given this story to Festus in Acts 22. Festus tired of hearing this same old story. He said, Paul, you are insane. Too much study has made you crazy. Festus is not a believer. He's not interested in Paul's story. There are people in this room right now that are not interested in the story that I'm telling, although I'm reading word from word from the Holy Bible. And real Christians ought to be interested in what God's word has to say. He said, man, you're crazy, you're whack, your whole story's out there. I'm not buying it. I think you are nuts. I'm going to tell you something. If you ever get really saved, the people that know you are going to think you've lost it. You ever get really saved, the people around you are going to think you've gone too far. I've heard people say of other people's uh, Christianity, it don't take all that. And I have the same response every time. Yeah, it takes a lot more than all that. It takes everything. And this man is one of those haters, and he's like, Paul, you're just crazy. Um, I've heard this speech before, and I'm still not with it. Verse 25, but Paul replied, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is the sober truth. I love that. That sounds like man might have had a drinking problem at one point in his life. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm straight in my right mind. This is this the stone cold. So you might have caught me six months ago before he was. He's like, no, nah, I'm telling you what's real right now. And in verse 26, King, he said, King Agrippa knows about these things. Now, this is the interesting thing about 
when you really share your faith a lot. And I want you to have this experience at some point in your life. I want you to be talking to somebody about your testimony, and I want you to see them begin to open up and listen. And you know that they're connecting with what you're saying. And you feel the Holy Ghost moving in your conversation. And you know that the words that you're saying are not just getting to their ears, but getting down on the inside of them. And God's beginning to do a work in their life. Paul sees this in what's going on. He said, King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak boldly, for I'm sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. Paul said, he knows what's up. Verse 27, King Agrippa snaps out of that dazed look where he was listening. He snaps out of that active listening, and he says, uh, or, or no, Paul continues in verse 27, says, King, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. Now, that's a bold thing to say to the king, because the king has the power to execute you. You can't get familiar with the king. You can't act uh, presumptuous on the king. But Paul feels he's connecting with this guy. And he's, he's trying to bring him to Christ. And he's trying to urge him along. He's like, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. In verse 28, this is when the king snaps out of it and says, Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? He's like, you think you, think you can come in here and throw five lines at me? Talk about some change in your life, and I'm just going to give up on my life wrong religion and follow you? Well, I know what Paul's thinking in his heart. I know, I, know, I know Paul's saying, I sure hope so. I know Paul's saying, that's why I'm telling you all this. That's why I'm putting my life on the line, to share all this with you. And he says so in verse 29, Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I, except for these change. He says, I don't know if it's going to happen today, Agrippa. I don't know if you're going to come to Christ quickly or if it's going to take a while. But I don't just hope it for you. I hope it for you and for everybody else that's hearing us talk, that they might become the same as I am, that they might become changed by God, that they might become truly repentant and saved. And he says, but I just hope they don't end up in these chains. I want them to be have the salvation that I have, but not the imprisonment. He says, that this is his prayer. And I want you to know today, on July 15, 2018, it's my prayer that everyone who hears me this day would become the same as I. You, you don't have to be, be, be five, nine and a half, cute and cuddly, old and uh, back hurt. But I love the Lord, and I want you to love the Lord too. I've been saved by the power of God's love, and I want you to be saved by the power of God's love. I've been changed by a true encounter with the Holy Spirit of God, and I want you to be changed by a true encounter with the Holy Spirit. God, save my soul. I know he changed me. I know for sure that I'm born again. I've shared my faith with, with tens of thousands of people, and I've had so many people when I ask them, are you saved, say, I hope so. And, and, I, and I take them to what, what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, that, that these things are written that we may know that we have eternal life. I wouldn't bet my eternal resting place on a hope so. If, if I was to ask you today privately and say, are, are you sure you're saved for real? Not just saved the church way, not just religious, not just a good person, but truly born again by the life-changing supernatural power of God's Holy Ghost. If you're only thing, if the best you can say is I hope so, that's not enough. You need to know so. So today, on my 37th spiritual birthday, I want to share with you a little bit about my story. I'm going to be short. I'm not going to keep you long, but I want you to hear what God has done in my life. 
those of you that have been around for a while know that we talk about two types of birthdays at Abundant Life. A natural birthday for me, that's August 6th. And a spiritual birthday for me, that's July 15th. Every year on August 6th, I have a natural birthday celebration. Uh, we don't do a lot, but I thank God for life. And every year on July 15th, I thank God for salvation. And I want, every one of us has had a natural birthday. We were all born someday, some month, some day, some year. But every one of us doesn't have a spiritual birthday. And I want you to make sure that you have the right answer to the right question. Because 1 Peter 3.15 the apostle said, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about your hope. People should wonder, why do you go to church so much? You just went last week. Why do you go again? You ought to be ready to give an answer for why you go to church as often as you do. Why do you read the Bible all the time? You've already read that book. Why are you reading it again? You ought to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. Why do you give your money to that church? They ain't doing nothing with it but building bigger buildings and better parking lots. Well, they can look around here and tell. There ain't been a new building on this property in 50 years, and the parking lot is what it is. But you should have a reason. If your child ever came to you and said, Mom, Dad, why is it that you talk about God so much? You ought to be ready to give a response for the hope that is in you because there's power in your testimony. When people won't listen to the preacher, they'll listen to the person's testimony. When people won't listen to what the Bible says, they'll listen to what their friend said. There's power in a testimony. And I wonder if I gave you the microphone right now and I said, tell us about your salvation testimony. Could you give me accurate details? I'm going to tell you about mine real quick. I grew up in church when I was really little. Before I was a month old, I was christened into the Catholic Church. Uh, my parents were Catholic. We, we went to Catholic Church Mass all the time until my parents got divorced when I was eight years old. And some of y'all have heard back then in the Catholic Church, they didn't care who was right, who was wrong. They didn't have innocent party and guilty party. Uh, they kicked out everybody. The, 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 the man, the woman, the children, uh, you're all out. So we did what the rest of the world had done that left the Catholic Church. We became Baptist and started going to Baptist Church. And that was my childhood. I got away from that later in life, but my early childhood was spent going to the Catholic Church and to the Baptist Church. I was born in San Diego, California. It re people don't believe me because people want to know about my accent everywhere I go. Where are you from, man? You sound so Southern. And so, I, you know, mostly I just tell them Jacksonville. And if you're, if you're not from Jacksonville, if you, if you didn't grow I grew up on the west side of Jacksonville, five miles from where we're standing. And if you're not from the west side of Jacksonville, you might not understand that Jacksonville is filled up with chickens, goats, pigs, hogs, horses, and big pieces of land. They're like, man, you, you must be from Georgia. No, I'm, from, I'm, I'm raised in Jacksonville, but if I really want to mess them up, and they say, where do you get that country accent? I tell them, uh, San Diego, California, because that's where I was born, all for about nine months of San Diego, California. Then I moved to, uh, my dad got out of the Navy and moved to my mom's hometown of Rayville, Louisiana, which is a small town outside of where they do Duck Dynasty in Monroe, Louisiana. When, when the Duck Dynasty people are the rich, uptown, educated people to your folk, you know you're here. They're here, you're, you're here. And all my mom's family were cotton farmers, soybean farmers, living on dirt patches in shacks, and uh, we were extremely poor. And then we moved to Virginia, 
or, or we moved to England first. We left there when I was four, between four and five years old, and we moved to England. I went to kindergarten, first and second grade in England, and when I came back to America after my parents got divorced after second grade, uh, Dina held on to it for much longer because uh, she was a year older, which isn't a lot unless you're the older one. Older siblings always know. Younger siblings like, you're only a year older than me. That's right, I'm a year older than you. But at that young age, eight, nine years old, she held on to that English accent way longer because she liked to play on it and pull on it. So we came back little, little British kids to America when my parents got divorced between second and third grade. And we moved in with some family members in Virginia. And we began riding the church bus to a little church in Virginia. And my mom ended up getting remarried in Virginia and to a Navy guy and moved us to Jacksonville in 1975. Uh, but I was in the third grade at this little church in Virginia. Little church that gave me this Bible. Third grade, I'm going to church. We're living in Virginia, living in base housing in Virginia. And the preacher's up there preaching hell hot and eternity long, and he was preaching directly at kids. And he's like, uh, any of you little kids don't want to die and go to hell forever. You need to come down here and pray, ask God to save you so you don't spend forever in hell. And I remember thinking, man, I ain't stupid. I just look this way. I'm coming down that aisle. I, I, I'm coming. I, I don't want to. And the, plus the fact that the week before my sister had done it, and I always followed in her footsteps. And so in the third grade, I walked an aisle in the church, and I told the preacher I wanted to go to heaven. And he said, all right, here's what you got to do. Pray this prayer. He said, hold my hand, pray this prayer. Well, I held his hand, and I prayed the prayer. I had no idea what I was praying. I was, I was confused. I didn't really understand a lot of what was going on. You know, I just moved to a country from a different country. I had come from England to America, and it was my first year in American schools. And so everything was happening fast. I don't even remember what he said. I do remember is he turned me around, and after I prayed, and he looked at the church, and he said, this is little Scotty Becker. And he comes today to accept Christ. All, all those in favor of receiving him in full fellowship to our church. How wordy and religious is that? Uh, let it be known by saying amen. And I'm thinking, you ain't going to ask who don't want to let me in, are you? And he didn't. So they, they let me in, told me I needed to get baptized. Didn't tell me why. I got baptized. And uh, that's, that became our church. Dean had walked out and prayed a prayer. Got baptized there. I walked out and prayed a prayer. Got baptized there. And hear this. It didn't amount to salvation for either one of us. We were doing what we were told to do, not what we wanted to do. We were doing what someone else understood, not what we understood. See, the Bible doesn't say walk and I'll pray a prayer and you'll be saved. The Bible says when you search for God with your whole heart, then you will find him. It's not, it's not as easy as just walking and I'll pray in a prayer. It's got to be a real life decision. So later that year, at 11 years old, 1975, we moved to Jacksonville and rented a house right off 103rd and Hillman. For six months while we had a house built in Country Creek off Normandy Boulevard where the famous Amos is. And when we moved into our home in Country Creek, I started riding the church bus. Dude came by, saw us all playing at the park on Saturday. Said, I'm bringing my church bus through here tomorrow. Be on the corner at 9.15. I have candy for everybody. Bet. I'm in. So, and, and I was looking too. I was at the corner. I, I didn't even walk past him. He, he, he wasn't going to tell me we'll give you candy after church. I'm like, where's the candy? I got the candy from the driver. I'm like, hey, let's, let's do this. 
And I started riding the bus to a little church on Normandy Boulevard called West Normandy Baptist Church. My sister and I got really involved in the youth group. Um, we, uh, that's where I met Gail. I was 11 and she was 5. It was a small little country church on Normandy Boulevard when Jacksonville was a much smaller city. And her mom and dad, and I tell them this all the time, I told them this last month at, at uh, Karen's funeral. I said, um, I was sharing with somebody, I said, yeah, they used to be the young, good-looking couple when I got to West Normandy. They're still there today. And the lady I was telling it to was older than them, and they're like, She's, they're still the young, good-looking couple. And I'm thinking, to you. <laughs> but they, they, were, they were young couple working with the youth. Gail was a little five-year-old girl. When you're a small church, you only have a couple small little kids. And so she was everybody's cute little uh, girl. And every boy in our youth group, this ought to tell you how wild boys are, every boy in our youth group said, I'm going to grow up and marry her. We only had like three girls in the whole church. One of them was five. Uh, and I won't tell you about the other two because I don't want to offend anybody. But that's where we met, and that's where I got to know her family. But Dean and I are going to this church. We're riding the bus. My mom is sending us to church, not taking us to church. Listen, it's better to take your children to church. But if you're not willing to go, at least send them to church. I thank God that I was sent to church. But in the course of going to this church, West Normandy Baptist Church on Normandy Boulevard, as an 11-year-old, they ended up letting me go to youth camp a year early that year because I was the only one in that age group. And they said, well, come on in. We'll let you go. And there was a preacher there named Herman Moore. And he challenged everybody. He was talking about being bold for Christ. Scripture says, whosoever believes in him should not be ashamed. If you call yourself a Christian, you ought to be willing to stand up for your God. And he said, so here, here's my challenge. I dare every one of you carry your Bibles to school next year. And I'm thinking, you can't dare me, old man. I'm, I'm, I'm quick for a dare. You mean, you, you, you really, you really want to find out how country somebody is? Dare them to do something ignorant. I dare you to try to jump across that 42-foot wide ditch. Oh, I can do it. Take these shoes off and get a running start. I'll do it. And he dared to. So every day in the seventh grade at James Weldon Johnson, started out at Eugene Butler because we were still living on Hillman. When the house got built, we moved over to Country Creek and got transferred the second nine weeks to James Weldon Johnson. And if you don't know where James Weldon Johnson is, it is in the hood. When people are like, oh, Pastor, you all over there in the hood now. I'm thinking, Georgetown ain't the hood. I mean, it, you know, it, well, relatively speaking, not, not to King's Road, not, not to James Weldon Johnson. Um, so I'm being bussed into James Weldon Johnson, race riots every day, fights every day, and I'm carrying this red Bible. And because I was proud and arrogant and had been dared by an old man, I didn't carry it underneath my, I didn't put it in my locker, I didn't carry it underneath my notebook. See, we didn't have backpacks, kids. We carried books in our hands. Y'all got, got one folder and a pencil and a backpack slung low on your back. On your back. No, we carried, we carried wads of books, and I carried this on top. And people ask me about it all the time. That's a Bible because I'm a Christian, and I'm with it, and you ain't, so I know better than you. And that was my whole philosophy of why I'm a Christian and they're not. And I carried the Bible to school every day in seventh grade. Seventh grade passes by eighth grade. Go to Joseph Stilwell Junior High School. And I'm not carrying my Bible to junior high. I took so much heat for it in seventh grade, but I just, I had, the man dared me to carry it every day. I carried it every day 
at James Weldon Johnson in the middle of race riots. In the, in the middle. Listen, 1975 was, was a brutal time in Jacksonville history. Do some research. You'll find out. Busing, uh, integration what was, was a difficult time in Jacksonville history. I, I decided eighth grade, going to junior high school on the side of town I live on, no, no more being bused. People were being bused into there, but I got off the bus chart and got to go to a school in my neighborhood, and I said, I'm not carrying this Bible to school. But when people started asking me, because all, most people will tell you, 7th, 8th grade, ninth grade, 6th through ninth grade, that's a real challenging time for kids. That's a time where they start getting exposed to things that, that could be a change for them. So I get to 8th grade, and at that point, and, uh, Joseph Stilwell was a junior high school, but it was only 8th and ninth grade. Ninth grade wasn't in high school, so it was 8th and ninth grade. And so there were older kids there. Uh, James Weldon Johnson was seventh grade center. It was only our grade. Stillwell, two grades there, eighth and ninth grade. So there's older kids there, and there's kids more mature. They want to start asking me stuff like, you want to go hang out behind a dugout and, and smoke weed? You want to smoke cigarettes? You want to drink beer? Um, and I'm like, I don't do all that. I'm a Christian. I wouldn't carry my Bible, but I'm still throwing that off as my excuse to why I, I don't do all that. And ridicule begins to happen and stuff, pe people teasing me. But I'm like, whatever, you're going to go to hell and I'm not. So who got the real laugh? See, if you really think that way, that proves you ain't saved. But that was my, that was my mindset. And so, you know, Dina's there. So Dina's always been older than me. She's always protected me. Um, she, uh, we grew up in a very violent, dysfunctional home, multiple stepfathers, uh, lots of abuse. Um, she always took care of me. She always looked out for me. So I got her there, and she was always so. It, people look at Dina now as this little church lady. Dina, Dina was just so dominant in everything. She up up until the sixth grade. Every time we would play pickup football or Red Rover, Red Rover, it was so humiliating because they always picked my sister before they picked me. She was taller than me. She 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 outweighed me, uh, and, and she she was just strong as an ox. Uh, by the time seventh grade happened, that changed over. But by the time I get to eighth grade, she's in the ninth grade. And so I'm like, okay, we're going there. She starts getting around the wrong people. She's in ninth grade. I'm in eighth grade. She's way more mature than me because girl in the, in the ninth grade is way more mature than a boy in the eighth grade, especially in my family. But Dina was, had always been the head cheerleader. She, had, she was National Honor Society. She was the president of her class. She won contests. She won beauty contests. My whole childhood was going to watch my sister in a beauty contest, a tap dancing contest, a, a ballet, uh, uh, horse riding, barrel jumping. And, you know, I did the horse riding. I wasn't doing that barrel jumping, though. But, I mean, she was always just so great at everything. And so I'm like, okay, well, we're all good. Well, Next year comes, I go ninth grade, she goes to 10th grade. Well, back then, Ed White High School was 10th, 11th, and 12th. So now she's going to a school I'm not at anymore. So I don't have her there to look over, or she, for, for her to look over me. So I got to face all this by myself, and I'm tired of telling people I don't want to do that. And um, all this pressure's coming to me, peer pressure, and I'm still trying to fade the heat and say, nah, I'm a Christian. So Dina's in the 10th grade. I'm in the ninth grade, still trying to be a good little boy. And one day, Dean and I, we used to go, we used to ride our bikes. Kids actually used to go outside and play. Anybody remember that world? We used to ride our bikes in Country Creek off Normandy Boulevard, and we'd go into all the new houses while they were building them, and we'd ride skateboards on the, on the freshly poured uh, slabs, and we would all just be hanging out there. 
And one day, I, I, I remember Dina pulled out uh, what I did not know at that time, but I, I, I learned quickly was something every real dope addict in the 70s had was a little purple velour bag with gold rope on it from Crown Royal. That Crown Royal bag that all the drug addicts used to hide their drugs in? Dina said, what do you think about a smoking joint? I said, smoking a joint? Yeah, marijuana. I said, we don't do that. We're Christian. And she pulled out a joint. I said, are you, what? We don't do that. She said, it's not that bad. Bug does it. If your daughter in the 10th grade starts hanging around with a drug addict named Bug, you can tell. Just ask your kids what their friend's name is. You can declass half of them. Ice pick, pookie poo, big dog, road monster. No, you ain't roll. You ain't rolling with ice ice pick, cue ball, bug. Turned my sister behind my back onto marijuana, and right then that day in ninth grade, uh, I smoked my first joint and. Had the same experience that every new person of marijuana had, what, what it did for me. Absolutely nothing. It's so funny watching new people smoke weed acting high. They're all faking that. Especially if, if, you're, if you're 13 years old and you, you never inhaled any smoke in your life, you're just like, <laughs> it's great. Uh, so I make it through that, and then I find myself going back to school that Monday and in quick order, those same kids that were asking me to drink beer and to get high behind the dugout that I was playing baseball with all started to include me in their group. And there was no more Bible and there was no one more, I'm a Christian, we don't do that. I completely got rid of my Bible, I, I set it aside, quit going to church. This Bible right here sat on my nightstand beside my bed just as a piece of furniture. And every Saturday, we had to dust the whole house. Y'all know kids used to do chores. Anybody remember that lifestyle? And I would dust around this Bible every Saturday, and it sat beside my bed just as a piece of artwork. And that began a life of downward spiral for me and Dina. And we began to embrace drugs and alcohol at such a fast level and at such a high level, we both became unhinged. And we went from being in gifted programs to being in parent-teacher conferences, struggling. I'm, I skipped 27 days out of 45, my third nine weeks as a senior in high school, because I felt like I had better things to do. I got into drug sales. Dean and I got into heavy drinking and drug use. Um, I was in and out of jail several times uh, before I even graduated high school. And it got so bad to the point, listen, parents, watch your children. Watch what your children are going through. We were blackout drunks. We, 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 we went through beer and wine, Boone's Farm, Mad Dog, all, all, all that silly stuff to buying gallon jugs of whole grain alcohol and keeping it in the trunk, drinking it in Florida heat just because we didn't feel right in our head if we weren't drunk. And this is what happens to the drunk. They, they got to have, have alcohol in their system to feel regulated. And one night, I went to a party, and keg party, and I was out partying and drank way too much. 
was driving home to my mom's house about 3 o'clock in the morning and just trying to stay awake. So I did what old school drunks do. I rolled the window down. I'm hanging my head out the window trying to stay awake so I don't crash my car again. I already had my license suspended, taken from me. I had been through a lot of things in the criminal justice system, uh, living a horrible life, and I made it home. Now, it's July 15th, late July 14th, early morning July 15th. I'd taken my shirt off. Um, I walked through. I'd become so unhinged as a child, my mom couldn't control me. She was a single mother at the time, and I was coming and going when I wanted to. I'd stay gone for days, come home, uh, get some change of clothes, and leave again. My mom didn't like the way I was coming in and out of her house, so she turned the garage into my bedroom. So I didn't really wasn't even much loud in the real, in the real house um, because I just put her through so much. But I came in through the garage, which is my entrance, had my shirt in my hand, take my shirt off. I'm, I'm coming down off being high, still awake, being drunk. So you, you, know, you know what's got to happen now. I mean, it's 3.30 in the morning. I need to find something to eat. And so I walk through my bedroom to throw my shirt down on my bed to go to the kitchen to get something to eat. And I never made it to the kitchen because my shirt landed like that napkin landed. My shirt landed half on the bed and half on the nightstand up against that red Bible. And I began to look at that red Bible, and I, f I felt frozen in time. And I thought, man, I haven't seen that in forever. I'd walked around it for years. Hadn't picked it up, hadn't touched it. I'm a very studious person. I love to read. Those years in church as a kid, I devoured the Bible. I read a lot. I, I, I knew a lot about the Bible. I didn't have a personal relationship with God. But that red Bible felt as if it was calling me. And I sat down on the edge of my bed. And I opened this Bible up, and I just started looking at places where I have underlined in here as a child. And I started reading about Jesus. And the Spirit of God overwhelmed me at that point and gave me such a real awareness that I was not a Christian. I'd been telling people that I was a Christian since I'd been in the third grade because all, all, I'd walk an aisle and pray to prayer. My life didn't change. I read the Bible because I like to read, uh, but my lifestyle didn't change. And the Spirit of God showed me that I needed a real relationship, and God began to draw me to him. See, the Bible says no one can really come to salvation unless God draws him or her. And I got down on my knees, and I prayed at about 3.30, 3.45 in the morning that day, and I asked God to save me. And I can remember what I said. I said, God, I want you to save me for real, not like Jimmy. See, Jimmy was a pastor's son that uh, I used to get high with. And he'd go to church all the time and, and play Christian boy. See, I gave that up. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't do two things. People wonder, did Pastor Scott really live what he says he lived? Does he really believe? Listen, if I ever get off the hinge, you'll know it. I'll be on the front page of the paper. I'm extreme in everything I do. I didn't go that church thing, no church thing. Uh, when I got done with it, I set it down. But as, as God began to draw me, I prayed and I said, God, please save me real I know that you're real and you can save me and I asked him I said please save me I don't know why I picked the apostle Peter well I guess that was I know now um, that was my when you get christened in the Catholic Church they give you a little Saint uh, medallion to wear on your necklace and I had a Saint uh, Peter necklace and uh, I said God save me the way you saved Peter not like Jimmy and God saved me that day I stayed up all that night reading the Bible and crying and praying and 
singing songs that I could remember from church. Later that morning, I'm still awake. A friend of mine calls me on the phone. He said, man, you ain't going to believe what happened to me last night. I said, you ain't going to believe what happened to me. My friend's name was Mark. And he asked me, he said, you remember Ted Boone from the park? This guy, Ted Boone, was a little older than us. He was a big, giant bodybuilder. And he said he lost a basketball game to Ted. And Ted, the bet was, you got to go to church with me if I win. So he said, i got to go to church with Ted Sunday, and I ain't going by myself. you got to come with me. And I'm like, I'm down, man. That's exactly what I'm down for. And I tried to share with him what happened with me. He had to get off the phone. And so Sunday morning came, and I went to the Hillcrest Baptist Church um, right off Cassett Avenue. And the preacher said, if you'd like to get saved or if you've been saved recently and you'd like to make a public profession of your faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to come. And God laid, laid on my heart to go down there, and the preacher said, would you like to get saved, son? I said, no, sir. I asked God to save me a couple days ago, and I know he did it. And so he said, awesome. Let's pray together. Uh, thanking God for saving you. And he said, this young man comes confessing Jesus Christ as his Lord. They told me that I need to get baptized. I said, I've already been baptized. He's like, yeah, but that was before your real salvation. you got to get baptized after salvation, the scripture says. So get your baptism on your proper side of salvation. So I got baptized there. And I began such a radical change because God blessed me to get around a good church and a good group of young people. I went to church that Sunday morning, made a public profession of faith. They said, we got church Sunday night. You want to come? I'm like, man, I'm all in. I knew I was going to be as extreme for God as I had been for the world. And so, I, yeah, I'll be here. So I came back. Mark didn't want to come back. Mark still is yet unsaved. If you look in our prayer book, the first, the first name in our prayer book, right now people's name you want to see saved in, in this notebook uh, in, in the, in the uh, bottom of this podium is Mark's name. He's still, I've, he's prayed a prayer with me several times to get saved. He's never truly been born again. He didn't want to come back Sunday night. I went back by myself. They told me Sunday night, hey, we got a Bible study for teens and young adults tomorrow. You want to come? Yeah, I'm in. Went to that, met some more good Christian friends. They said, hey, we're going to see the men play softball. Back then, uh, Hillcrest Baptist Church had nationally ranked softball teams, and it was a big deal on this side of town. Churches were big into softball. I got big into softball, so I'm like, yeah, Tuesday night, I'm there. Wednesday night, midweek Bible study. Thursday night, they said, hey, we go out tomorrow night for visitation. I said, what's visitation? They said, we go knock on doors and tell people how they can be saved and pray with them to uh, become born-again Christians. You want to come? Yeah. This is from, from day one. Sunday morning church, Sunday night church. Monday night, youth Bible study. Tuesday night, men's softball game. Wednesday night, midweek Bible study. Thursday night, I'm going door to door. My first week being the Christian. I'm knocking on people's doors saying, hey, you want to get saved? Being saved is great. You should get saved too. Then they said, we got a ministry on Friday and Saturday night for teenagers and young adults called the Peacemaker. We have a little like mini concert. Then we eat some snacks. And then we have a, a preacher preach a message. You want to come? Yeah, I want to come because I got nothing else to do because I gave up my old life. And people are like, I don't want to get saved. What will I do with all my friends? Listen, you, you, your friends call you and say, hey, man, you come to party night? No, man, I'm coming to church. You want to go to church? Click. You don't have to worry about telling your friends anything about Jesus. You don't have to worry about breaking up with your friends. They'll break up with you. It's Friday, Saturday night. I'm at the Peacemaker. Sunday morning, back to church. Sunday night, uh, Sunday night Bible study. T uh, Monday night. Youth Bible study, Tuesday night, men's softball game, Wednesday night, back to church, Thursday night, door-to-door, soul-winning visitation, Friday night, peacemaker, Saturday night, peacemaker, Sunday morning, back to church, Sunday night, back to church, Monday, youth Bible study, Tuesday night, men's softball game, Wednesday night, midweek Bible study, Thursday night, door-to-door, soul-winning salvation, Friday, Saturday night, peacemaker, Sunday morning, back to church, Sunday night, back to church, Monday night, back to youth Bible study, and Tuesday, er, the brakes slammed on. 
after about three and a half weeks of being together with the exact same group of Christian people every single day, for three and a half weeks, there was no men's softball game. I'm devastated. I'm like, well, what do Christians do? I don't know what Christians do. I've never been a Christian. I thought we got together every day and prayed and talked about how great God was. And this was, this was a group of real Christians. Every time before we left, we held hands and we prayed and we, we shared Bible stories with each other. And we, we were like, man, because, you know, it was summer. It was between school. And I, I was graduated and had no job because I'd been nothing but a criminal and a, a drug dealer. I'd quit doing that. So now I had no source of income. I'm not going to college. I, I'm, doing nothing. I'm just in church all the time reading the Bible. I still have notes journal from my reading where I, I read books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel all in one sitting. I would read the Bible for 14, 15 hours without getting up to use the bathroom. When I came into Christ, I came all the way in. And when we didn't have nothing to do, I'm like, man, I don't know, man. I, I ain't saying I'm going to relapse. I ain't saying I ain't going to go out and get blind drunk. But, you know, it got to be something us Christian folks can do. This is a lifestyle for me now. And so that same group of people, we got together at Normandy Mall when it was a mall, and we sat on the hoods of our cars, and we read Bible verses to each other, and we prayed together, and that was my introduction into Christianity. My sister, when I, when I told my mom and uh, my sister that morning after I stayed up praying all night, God saved me last night. They're like, yeah, whatever. They really had kind of pushed me off to the side because I was out there. I was, I was uncontrollable. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And I had put my mom through so much, my mom had asked me many times to please just leave me alone. Move out of my house. I can't deal with you. And in hatred of an unsaved teenager, I told my mom, I'm not going to live anywhere else. I can live here for free. And ever since I've been saved, I have been on a determined effort to show my mom the love and the respect that I failed to show her as an unsaved teenager. And they just thought, you know, Scott's on some new deal, probably a cult, you know, uh, whatever. And so... I start changing, and I start helping out around the house. I never helped out around the house. I started coming home to sleep in my own house at night. I never came home to sleep in my own house at night. I, I, I started being sober. I'd never been sober. And so they're watching me, but they're just assuming that because it's me, it's off. And I started doing chores around the house. I hadn't done chores around the house since my stepfather had moved out because I went into total rebellion. And one day, Dina came home from work, and I was sitting on the couch folding towels that I had washed and dried for my mom. I never washed or dried towels in life. Yeah, my, they just magically appeared in the, in the linen closet. I used them, threw them in the hamper, got a fresh one the next day. And Dina came home. She said, all right, this is nuts. You're, you're literally folding towels now? You're washing, you're washing, you're washing mom's towels and, and, and cleaning up around the house? You need to tell me what's really going on in your mind. Have you just lost it? And I told her. And she listened. I got her to come to church with me. Two weeks later, after coming to a couple of church services, she prayed to receive Christ. We start tagging up on my mom. My mom was so mad at this point. She called the church. She said, what type of brainwashing cult are you? You changed my son. My son used to be this, and now he's this Bible quote and going to church every day. You've ruined his life. And I'm thinking, you didn't even want me in the house. Now I'm folding your towels, washing the dishes. And we started telling mom that we got saved. She's like, y'all been saved. I took you to church when you were babies. You were christened as Catholics. I held you when the priest poured water on your head. And it aggravated her 
that we're telling her she needs something that we have. She's like, I, I've, been, I've been in church before y'all were born. And we just kept telling her and kept telling her and kept telling her. And she wouldn't come to church with us. She wouldn't come. One day she came to church with us, and I was devastated because the pastor wasn't there. And I had that same bad thinking that a lot of y'all have, that if you, if you bring a visitor and somebody else is preaching, you're like, oh, Gary, I wanted them to hear pastor. But it's not about who's speaking. It's about who they're speaking about. And this little, little, I mean, like five-foot-five uh, old gray-haired dude named Connie Johnson, Pastor Connie Johnson. Um, he preached. And we're standing at the end, and they're playing an invitation song. And he said, he told everybody, if you'd like to be saved, step out from where you are and come down here and pray. And my mom stepped out from that pew and walked down there and got saved. And I just felt like my heart exploded. I was so happy for my mom. Then we all started working on my little brother. And he was in a, he was young, didn't understand stuff. So we were giving him time, and he went through his rebellious stage. But one night he came to church with me, and I have it written down in my Bible in the notes, the date, and beside it says, Mark got saved tonight. And so I went from where I was to what God had changed me to be. And I saw my sister get saved, and I saw my mom get saved. And I saw my little brother get saved, and I've been seeing people get saved for years ever since then. And I've been trying to tell people about this real life-changing God. Too many people are content just to have church. Church won't do it for you. Religion won't do it for you. You've got to have a real life personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So, see, I have a very definitive, that's who I was, this is who I am. I have a very drastic, when the Bible talks about going from darkness to light, I went from extreme darkness to massive light. I don't know what your testimony is. I only know what mine is. But I know this. There are people sitting in church in this room today that think that they're saved that really aren't. You think because you prayed a prayer because you're a good person, because you've done some things for God, that you're going to go to heaven. In Matthew chapter 7, on Judgment Day, Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, But Lord, I preached. I did miracles. I served you. And he'll say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. A lot of pastors are going to go and die and go to hell. A lot of choir members, a lot of Sunday school teachers, a lot of good people. A lot of people working in food pantries. A lot of good people. And they're going to be shocked when they get to heaven. Because they're going to say, I did all these things for you, God. He's going to say, but I never knew you. We never had a close relationship. We never were intimately personal to each other. So my question to you today is, are you sure that what you have that you call salvation is enough to get you to heaven? Because I told people in the third grade, I'm good. I'm saved. I told people that in the fourth grade, the fifth grade, the sixth grade, the seventh grade, the eighth grade, the ninth grade, the tenth grade, the eleventh grade, twelfth grade, after graduation. I told, I felt like, yeah, I'm, I'm square because I didn't know better. I thought that I'd done what was required to do to get to heaven, but I didn't understand real salvation involves turning away from your sin and living a changed life. I didn't have to change anything about me after July 15th, 1981. Things began to change from the inside out. Some of you are wrestling trying to be good Christian people 
wondering why you don't like reading your Bible, wonder why prayer is hard for you, wonder why you don't feel the, what people should feel in praise and worship, wondering why it all feels a little sticky and icky and hard for you because you're a square peg trying to fit in a round hole. See, when God really saves you, He does the change. See, the drunk can't change himself. If he could, he already would. The, 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 the person struggling can't, can't fix their own life. If they could, they already would. But if you come to God and give your everything to Him, He'll save you for real, and He'll put His power on the inside of you, and that will change you without any effort on your part other than just saying, have your way. I found out how easy it was to get off drugs and alcohol. No rehab. I can take you to the place off Lambing Road, right off, right around the corner from here, where I part, pulled my car off the side of the road and I poured out gallons of white lightning moonshine. No withdrawals. God just began to do in me what he promised he would do in me. Some of you don't have power to change because you don't have the change agent on the inside of you giving you that power. And you wonder why it doesn't fit. It doesn't work for you. Because you need more than what you've got. You think that you've got enough to get there. But if you be honest with yourself, you know that it's not really well with your soul. I would have told anybody and told people in junior high and in high school, I'm good, I'm saved, I did all that. But it wasn't until July 15th, 1981, where I had a real personal experience with Jesus Christ and he changed my life. And you need to have that. You need to have that. It's a new birth. That's what it means to be born again. I became a brand new person on that day. And I've had ups and I've had downs since then. And, I, and I've failed and I've succeeded since then. But every step of the way, God continues to pick me back up. And he gives me the strength. It's, it's not the willpower of the Christian that gets them off drugs, alcohol, and causes them to read their Bible every day for 37 years. It's the power of God living on the inside of them that enables them to do this. My mom had been smoking cigarettes since she was 12 years old, picking cotton in rural Louisiana. Six children in her family. She's the only one who went to high school. All the rest of them had to work the field. She worked the field, but went to high school too. Smoking cigarettes, they all did it. My mom was smoking three packs of cigarettes a day. By the time she was 30 years old, her doctor told her, you have early signs of emphysema. If you don't stop smoking, you're going to be dead soon. She told him, I'll die doing what I like. She was not going to give it up. When she got saved, nobody browbeat her about her cigarettes. Nobody said, you're a Christian now, you got to stop smoking. Nobody, uh, no, nobody was messing with her like that, and she wasn't going to be told what to do anyhow. God's got to make those kind of changes. And one night, my mom was doing what she did every night after she got saved. She was reading her Bible, because that's what saved people do. She was sitting up in her bed reading her Bible, and a long thing of ashes fell off her Bible and messed up the page on her Bible. And she said she felt at that time that there was a decision to be made, that these two things weren't going good together. And she wasn't going to get rid of that Bible. So she quit a... a, a almost 30-year, three-pack-a-day habit of cigarettes instantly. No gum, no patch, no withdrawal, no rehab, no anything. Because salvation gives you God, and God gives you the power to change. 
The heartbreaking thing for me as a pastor, listen to this and I'm done. I know it's been long, but listen, and I'm done. The heartbreaking thing to me as a pastor is I stand in front of people every week that I believe are good people, people that want to be good people, but I see the struggle in their face. And see, I know the difference between having church without Jesus and having Jesus and the church. And I see the struggle in people that I preach to, and I know salvation is not real to them. They want to be good people, but that's self-effort. And it's really as easy as letting go and letting God do the work. The problem is pride keeps you from God. The Bible says God resists the proud. He has to draw you in. He's not going to draw you in in your pride. And so many people know that they should get saved, but they're so worried about what will people think of me. It doesn't matter what people think of you. It matters what God knows of you. So many people have had times where they knew they should have walked down an aisle and prayed a prayer for salvation, and they decided not to do it because they let fear, embarrassment, wondering what other people would think. I'll tell you this. If every elder and every deacon came down today to get saved, there wouldn't be any thought in my mind about how could you have been, you know, flogging this role and not even be truly saved. I'd be excited. I want all our deacons to be saved. I want all our elders to be saved. I want everybody in this room to be saved. I'm like Paul before Agrippa. Yes, I want you to become a Christian. Not just you, but everybody that hears my voice. If you would give up on your effort and embrace what Jesus did on the cross, he would give you the power to be an overcomer. Some of you can't overcome anything because you don't have the power of the overcomer inside you. Religion without a relationship with Jesus, will clutter your calendar and make you feel guilty. But a real relationship with Jesus that is true Bible salvation will give you joy unspeakable and full of glory. Some people wonder, is all that, they see people praising and worshiping God and they wonder if they're faking. Some are and some aren't. But the bigger question is, what are you faking? You can fool people, but you can't fool God. There's going to come a day, the Bible says, where we're going to stand before God in judgment. And he's not taking, but I preached for you. He's not taking, but I served you. He's not taking, but I was a good person. Do you have a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? Because everything else is short of what real salvation is. That's why some people never really click, never really get it, never really never really fit in. And that's why they come to church until they get tired of coming to church and they fade out because they tried church. They tried goodness without salvation. And the only person who can effectively live the Christian life is Jesus Christ on the inside of you. I hope you'll let God give you the power to change today. Some of you have walked this out, prayed this prayer many times, many times. And you say, Pastor, I've tried this all before. And here I am again today feeling like I'm not saved. What should I do? Keep searching. Ask God to save you again. Get desperate for God. He said, when you search for me your whole heart. What about the last 27 times you walked this aisle? Why didn't that work? I can't tell you. Maybe it wasn't your time. Maybe you weren't searching with all your heart. Maybe God was waiting on you to get to this place where when you get real salvation, it locks in with you and changes you forever. The way it's locked in with me and changed me forever. The way it locked in with Paul and changed Paul forever. The way it's locked in with real Christians all over the world and changed them forever. I hope you won't let your pride 
keep you out of heaven. I hope you have more than a hope that heaven is your home. I hope that you know that you know that you know that Jesus Christ lives on the inside of you. And he is the power that enables you to change. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for life-changing Holy Ghost power. God, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name that you would save the lost. Draw people to you. Help people to understand the difference between trying and being. And let someone today be born again. I'm going to ask you to keep your head bowed and your eyes closed just for a moment with no one looking around but me. There's so many people in this room that need true salvation today. I, I want to give you a quick opportunity to really get your heart right with God. Not just another prayer, not just another, not, uh, another attempt, but to really become born again today. To embrace everything that God has for you and turn your back on everything that God doesn't have for you. If you're here and, and, and you know that you need more than you have, if you're here and you know that you, you haven't really ever truly had that right salvation on the inside of you that the Bible talks about that I've talked to you about today, I want to ask you to pray a simple prayer with me. The prayer is not magic. The prayer won't save you. But God said if you call on his name, he'll save you. If you really want God and you ask him to save you, he'll save you for real. It doesn't matter how many times you've tried this before. If you're saved, you don't need to do this now. But if, you, if you're concerned that you're not saved, you need to do this now. Some people say, well, Pastor, the devil just gives me doubts about my salvation. That's not true. The devil would never give you doubts about your salvation because people who doubt investigate and find out how to get really saved. If you have doubts about your salvation, that's the grace of God trying to let you know that you're not there yet, but that he wants you to get there. If you're here and you're not saved, you have doubts about your salvation, but you're ready today. Your spiritual birthday can be the same day as mine, July 15th, different year, same day. The God that saved me 37 years ago is still saving people today. I'm going to pray a prayer out loud. I want you to pray it silently in your heart. If you really mean business with God, the Bible says God can hear the thoughts in your mind. You don't have to pray out loud. But if you want to get saved and you're serious about it, if you're desperate for God to save you, as I pray out loud, I want you to pray this in your heart. Dear God, I believe in you. And I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And that he was raised from the dead on the third day. Please forgive me of my sins. Save me. Make me a real Christian. Let me be born again according to your word. Change me for your glory. I'll follow you forever. Give me your power. Thank you for listening to the AOCF Sound Doctrine Podcast. And visit us on the web at aocfnow.org. Your financial support for this ministry allows us to share the gospel around the world. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you would like to give a donation, please go to aocfnow.org. Abundant Life Christian Fellowship Church, loving God, loving people.